you're sitting there, you know, you're, you know, the water's rushing by, um, you know, the water's flowing downstream, and yet millions of salmon are, are pumping their way upstream. They're defying gravity. And then you've got bears coming and going and, you know, plucking the salmon out, and, and, and the sounds of the eagles, the sounds of the ravens. Um, I've never really felt more alive, you know, watching this incredible show of life. I can only imagine what that used to be like down here, but it was so long ago that we lost it down here. Good morning, I'm Tommy Halm, and welcome to another edition of Tree Huggers International, recorded today at the production facilities of the CBS Radio Cluster in Seattle, Washington. Tree Huggers International is a weekly natural science and environmental affairs program dedicated to the preservation of parks, wilderness, and special places, from the beaches to the mountains to the deserts. This is Tree Huggers International. Be careful. And use this show with caution, because you might just learn something. The Tongass National Forest in southeast Alaska is the official designation for the largest surviving component of original Pacific Temperate Rainforest, whose footprint lies along the western side of the Pacific Coast Ranges from Prince William Sound in Alaska, all along the British Columbia coast in Vancouver Island, through the Pacific Northwest of Washington and Oregon, and into the Redwood Belt of Northern California. While this is the largest temperate rainforest ecoregion in the world, barely any of its native footprint survives today, with only 4 or 5% of the original old growth intact. The lion's share of that intact ancient old growth temperate rainforest lies in the Tongass, along the coast, in glacial fjords, and on some 5,000 islands, big and small. Lush vegetation abounds in the Tongass. At about 17 million acres, or about the size of West Virginia, the Tongass National Forest contains nearly one-third of the planet's rare, old-growth temperate rainforest, with incredible stands of Douglas fir, Sitka spruce, and western red cedar, as well as dense growths of epiphytes and mosses. The area is also known for its abundant wildlife, and using the word abundant still doesn't do justice to the amazing diversity of fauna in the Tongass, from slugs to bald eagles, driven by the incredible volume of salmon, which pass annually through the region's watersheds, the bears which consume them, and the amazing cycle of life which they play a part in. Amy Gulick is an award-winning nature photographer and writer who has had her writing and photos featured in publications like Audubon, National Wildlife, Sierra, and Nature's Best Photography. Among her many accolades, she was awarded the Daniel Hausberg Wilderness Image Award from the Alaska Conservation Foundation, and she is a fellow with the International League of Conservation Photographers. Amy Gillick is also the force behind the book and media project Salmon in the Trees, a collection of Amy's many photographs of the Tongass Rainforest region, complemented by texts and essays from native Alaskans, outdoor writers, scientists, and others. And we're fortunate to have Amy Gulick joining us today. And how appropriate this is with 2011 being the International Year of Forests. Amy, welcome to Tree Huggers International. We are really thrilled to have you here today. Welcome. Thank you. We've got a lot to talk about, and I want to start with an explanation of what salmon in the trees is. What does the term mean? In part because we're going to be referring to this life cycle throughout the show and how it's literally a reflection of the ecosystem of the Tongass. As a nature photographer and writer, uh, I'm always on the lookout for interesting stories. 
And a while back, a few years ago, I read uh, an article somewhere in a magazine that talked about this uh, remarkable connection between salmon and trees in southeast Alaska. And it was kind of a scientific article, and it was kind of dry. But I still came away with this, you know, incredible just fascination with this. Well, how can there be salmon in trees? I mean, how is that even possible? And that whole idea just would not leave my head. And so I just decided I have to go up. I have to see this for myself. I have to try and document this. And, and tell others about this remarkable connection. So in uh, Southeast Alaska, particularly in the Tongass National Forest, there's more than 4,000 salmon spawning streams um, that you know, weave throughout this whole forest. And so when the salmon return uh, to their spawning streams, they leave the ocean, they return to freshwater and to the, the streams actually where they were born. They come into their streams and um, their bodies are absolutely loaded with marine nutrients from their time spent out in the ocean. So they come into the streams, all the bears in this area, and this area has some of the highest densities of black bears and brown bears in the world. So all the bears in this area, they're just like waiting for these salmon to come in, and they're just you know ready for this incredible you know, nutrient-packed feast. And bears don't particularly like being around a lot of other bears, but when the food supply is as plentiful, they're kind of like will somewhat tolerate each other's presence. But in general, they'll they'll you know the bears will come down to the streams, pluck salmon out of the streams, and then take them into the woods to try and avoid conflict with other bears. Well, over time, and and salmon spawning is going on for you know several months up there. It kind of depends on the area. But over time, you know, all these bears are making trips from the stream into the woods with fish, and they don't necessarily eat the whole fish. They leave some behind. And over a period of time, the nutrients from the bodies of these salmon decompose into the forest floor, and the trees absorb these nutrients through their roots. And scientists have actually been able to trace a particular form of marine nitrogen. It's called nitrogen-15 in trees near salmon streams that they can link directly back to the fish. So that's how salmon end up in the trees. So literally in the branches and, and, and needles of these trees, of these conifers, you can find components of, of the building blocks of salmon. Yeah, in, in the trunks, in the branches, at the very tops of these, you know, hundreds of feet tall trees, um, in like the lower brushy vegetation as well. When you first learn about the connection, you kind of say, oh, wow, that's like the coolest thing I've ever heard. But once <laughs> you really understand it, you're like, well, it's also the most natural connection in the world. So I always tell people it's this very, it's an unexpected and yet perfectly natural connection. And when you're actually on these salmon streams, watching millions of salmon come in and you're watching bears all around you, you know, pluck them out and take them into the woods, you start looking around and you look up and you look at the trees and, and, and you go a little ways, say, off the stream and you just, you just notice. It's like the, the trees, are, they're bigger, um, you know, they're thicker, they grow taller, they grow faster, it's much lusher right along that stream side, and you just look at the trees like, that's why there's salmon in the trees. Scientists have also determined that 70% of nitrogen in streamside foliage along these salmon streams is of ocean origin, which means it's coming in in the bodies of salmon. And, you know, you can be miles away from the ocean. I mean, that's how far some salmon travel up some of their spawning streams, um, and you're getting this incredible hit of ocean nitrogen um, that's coming into the forest. Again, it, to me, it's just it's the coolest thing in nature. <laughs> and, and obviously, this cycle's been going on for millions of years. This is new science in a lot of ways. People weren't aware of this two decades ago. Right, exactly. Um, this is maybe 15, 20-year-old you know, science that's been done. You know, prior to this, we, we didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to what salmon were doing once they left the ocean and were entering their spawning streams. You know, we knew that they were entering the spawning streams and that's where they would lay their eggs and then the young would hatch and then they'd go out to the ocean again. But we didn't really pay a whole lot of attention. And 
And I think because of that, um, in many salmon spawning areas, say in the lower 48 in Washington, Oregon, you know, Northern California, um, you know, if we didn't really know what salmon needed and how salmon were benefiting that forest as well and how the forest was benefiting salmon, we didn't really think much when we would, you know, cut the forest down, you know, right to the banks of the stream. Um, We didn't really give that much of a thought. Um, But now that we know this, you know, again, this incredible connection, not only the benefit that salmon are having on the forest and all the, uh, the wildlife and people as well, but also how the forest benefits the salmon. At least I think we're starting to look at the ecosystem finally as a whole, yeah. as opposed to, you know, just little pieces here and there. Now, you spent about two years overall in the Tongass working on the Salmon in the Trees project. But you're no stranger to Alaska. You'd spent a lot of time in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge uh, years ago. 2001, um, that was my first trip uh, up to the refuge. And I went primarily um, because there was uh, the refuge was starting to... Uh, make headline news, like almost every other week type of thing. And in some cases, it was every day. And it was what you'd hear in the headlines was very strident. It's like, you know, it's either we have to drill for oil and nothing lives there, so we're not going to harm anything. <laughs> you'd hear that on the one hand. On the other hand, you'd hear, no, this is this incredible, this is the Serengeti of North America. You know, there's just wildlife everywhere. Um, you know, we can't drill for oil here. It will be, you know, just devastating to this kind of America's last great wilderness is how it's always portrayed. And I was thinking, well, that is two completely stark (laughs) descriptions of the same place. And it can't possibly be both. You know, so which is it? And so I decided to go and I went up and this was pre-iPhone, pre-Facebook, pre, you know, a lot of modern technology. And I somehow pulled off a webcast while I was up there, which was tough (laughs) given the technology I had at the time. But took my laptop. I had a gigantic satellite phone with me. Um, (laughs) Tough to get reception that far north, you know, in, on, on the planet, but was able to send daily reports and photos back to a website. Um, the website's uh, oneearthadventures.com. And it just detailed really what I was seeing, you know, that there was incredible amounts of life there. I also went to Prudhoe Bay, which is next door to the refuge, where there has been significant oil development up there since uh, the late 60s. And uh, so I could see, it's like, you know, what, what are we talking about here? If we do oil development, what kind of footprint are we actually going to have in the, in the refuge? And, um, you know, I came back, it's like, you can't have both. It's nice to think that we could drill up there, get the oil that we think that we, you know, continue to need and uh, not harm anything. But the, the reality is you just can't, yeah. you know, you can't do that. So anyway, it's another incredible part of Alaska. Alaska is just this you know, if you've never been there, it's there's no place like it in the world. Absolutely no place like it in the world. You feel like you're stepping back in time uh, in many, many ways. Um, in the Tongass in particular, um, because I live in Washington State uh, in the Northwest, it's a very similar ecosystem. It's this coastal temperate rainforest. Um, we used to have incredible runs of salmon here in Washington State. We used to have grizzly bears 100, 200 years ago. Um, we had that incredible web of life that still exists in the Tongass. And again, but the climate and the the ecosystem is similar. But since I was going back and forth so much when I was working on the book, I, 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 you know, get on an airplane and fly from Seattle to, say, Ketchikan, which is the southernmost community in southeast Alaska. It's a 90-minute flight, and yet you step off that plane and you might as well be going back 100, 150 years biologically and ecologically. You step off, within 20 minutes, you can be on this wild flowing salmon stream with millions of salmon coming in, grizzly bears plucking, you know, salmon, you know, steps from you, hundreds of bald eagles circling around. It's just this incredible uh, show of life. 
that I can only imagine what that used to be like down here. But it was so long ago that we lost it down here that no one really has a, a memory of what things were. Well, you've got a great collection of essays in the Salmon in the Trees book, one of which is an essay which you wrote, What Goes Around Comes Around. And I want to read a passage from it, and then I want you to comment on it, if you'd be so kind. But the, the passage is, Bald eagles swoop from treetops to rock tops, eyeballing the feast before them. Bears march into the stream with purpose, causing me to stand at attention. They know I'm here, but they seem focused on the fish at hand or at paw. With one eye pressed against the viewfinder and one eye open for bears, I attempt to focus on anything but instead just bask in the present. Which is a great way to sum up what it sounds like being there in the Tongass. And it sounds like what it might have been like on the Olympic Peninsula 200 years ago. And I just wondered if you could uh, comment on, like, that perfect moment there when you sort of stop and realize and look at the tops of the trees and are really aware of all these things happening around you. Yeah, it's uh, southeast at certain times of the year. There's just these incredible hits of or very concentrated life forms going on. And and that's why I kind of liken it to it's you know this is the greatest show on earth, <laughs> and you know it's better than any rock concert I've ever been to, and I've been to some really good rock concerts. <laughs> and uh, I mean it is you just I, you just feel like you have this front row seat to this unbelievable show, and you know there's just like you know lights and dancers and just like all this activity going on around you. And the amazing thing is is that that can be happening on almost every single stream. It's not just like one or two places, you know, where this is happening. It's happening on all of these spawning streams uh, for the most part. So you're sitting there, you know, you're, you know, the water's rushing by, um, you know, the water's flowing downstream and yet millions of salmon are, are pumping their way upstream. They're defying gravity, which that's amazing in and of itself. And then, and then you've got bears coming and going and, you know, plucking the salmon out and, and, and the sounds of the eagles, the sounds of the ravens, um, uh, the gulls, uh, you know, fishermen, you know, again, people are very much a part of this place as well. But it, it's, uh, I've never really felt more alive, you know, watching this incredible show of life. The other fascinating, I think, moment I, I had on one of those spawning streams, as a nature photographer, I've always kind of felt like I'm um, an observer to nature. I'm witnessing it and I'm documenting it. And I've never really felt like I was kind of a part of it until spending a lot of time up here. And, and the moment that really did that for me. So I'm on this salmon stream. There's millions of salmon, you know, milling around, you know, leaping out of the water, trying to get upstream, you know, almost hitting me. Uh, and again, bears are coming and going. And, and when you're in a situation like that, you have to be very alert, very aware of what you're doing, where you are, where the bears are, you know, where, where they want to be. And there was uh, a lull in bear activity, though. And I'm like, OK, great. I don't have to pay so much attention to the bears I can now focus on the salmon because I really needed some good you know, photos of salmon. And, and so I'm, I'm looking through the viewfinder and uh, you know, I'm, I'm really intently focusing on the salmon. And for some reason, I didn't hear anything. I didn't see anything out of the corner of my eye. But for some reason, I looked up from the camera and there's this bear like four feet away. <laughs> and, yeah, and again, I've been around a lot of bears before. So I wasn't, I wasn't scared as much as I was startled and on like just high alert. But when it's when you're in, when it when you're that close to each other, there's not a whole lot you can really do other than kind of keep your head. And so I was a little startled again that this bear was so close. Like, oh no, you know, I'm I'm in its way. You know, it doesn't want me to be here. But then I looked at the bear, and the bear could care less that I was there. The bear was doing the exact same thing I was doing, very intently staring at the salmon and focusing on the salmon. And it was at that moment that I actually felt like I was a part of nature and not just this observer, you know, watching it all. 
But it, it took literally almost standing shoulder to shoulder with a bear <laughs> to, to feel that. Were you by yourself at that moment? I think my uh, my assistant slash husband was you know, around, but again, it's... Hiding behind a tree? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hiding up a tree? <laughs> I mean, again, there's just not a lot you can do in a situation like that, except just keep your cool. But again, the bear was just like, hey, you know, if you're fishing, I'm fishing, it's all good. <laughs> Just joining us, this is Tree Huggers International, recorded today at the CBS Radio Cluster in Seattle, Washington. I'm Tommy Howe, and we're joined in the studio by photographer and writer Amy Gulick, and we're talking about her experiences in southeast Alaska in the Tongass Rainforest and her book, Salmon in the Trees, Life in Alaska's Tongass Rainforest, published by our friends at Braided River, which is the conservation imprint of the Mountaineers Books. And you can learn more about Salmon in the Trees, the book, and the new media platform at salmonintheTrees.org. SalmonintheTrees.org. You can also learn more about Braided River and their portfolio of conservation projects and publications and multimedia events at BraidedRiver.org. That's Braided, B-R-A-I-D-E-D, www.BraidedRiver.org. And the Mountaineers Books can be found online at mountaineersbooks.org, mountaineersbooks.org. More of Amy Gulick's work can be seen at her website, amygulick.com. That's G-U-L-I-C-K, amygulick.com. I also want to give a special Tree Huggers International thanks to my friend and broadcast colleague and fellow Ohio University alum, Greg MacArthur, for making time to engineer this session today at CBS Seattle. Thank you for your time, Greg. The U.S. Forest Service is part of the coalition of organizations supporting your Salmon in the Trees tour and exhibition right now throughout southeast Alaska, along with the Alaska Wilderness League and the National Forest Foundation and Braided River. And I imagine the folks you've met with the Tongass National Forest have an astonishing amount of competing interests to satisfy in managing such a, a mammoth region. Yeah, I, I mean, the Forest Service is uh, you know, charged with uh, managing uh, the Tongass National Forest. And again, it is a huge region. I mean, 17 million acres, uh, about the size of the state of West Virginia. Uh, it's gigantic. And forest, our national forests around the country, they're supposed to be managed uh, for multiple use uh, with sustained yield. And that's kind of always the rub when it comes to our national forests. And, you know, what is multiple use and what is sustained yield? And it varies from forest to forest. And um, in the Tongass, uh, you know, multiple use includes things uh, like uh, timber harvest, uh, mining. Um, there's no livestock uh, grazing, so that doesn't go on up there. And uh, recreation is huge. Things like sport fishing, uh, hunting, uh, you know, berry picking, uh, hiking, that kind of thing. They have a monumental <laughs> task up there. And uh, in, in the past, or I'd say really since, since World War II, um, the Tongass, and up till maybe 10 years ago, the Tongass was primarily managed for large-scale industrial timber harvest. That is no longer going on at this moment. And Tongass is really going through a uh, state of transition and not 
quite sure, you know, where all that's going to go and how it's going to affect not only the people who live there. Um, there are about 70,000 people that live in southeast Alaska scattered uh, throughout several dozen small uh, communities. Uh, but again, it is a national forest. It belongs to all Americans. Um, so it needs to be managed in a way, um, you know, that hopefully we're going to, you know, be able to enjoy it forever. And it's my greatest hope. And it's it's really one of the reasons why I did the book and am focusing on this incredible connection between salmon and trees and showcasing what a what a phenomenal uh, place the Tonga still is. Uh, it's my greatest hope that it's it will always be a place where there are salmon in the trees. You know, down in the lower 48 in the Pacific Northwest, um, we lost that connection uh, so long ago. We used to have that intact ecosystem down here. We used to have thriving fishing um, communities uh, along the uh, northern western coast. We don't anymore, and um, you know that for many reasons. So Southeast Alaska is this major salmon stronghold, and uh, salmon are clearly a renewable species. If if we can, you know, give them what they need, you know, healthy forests, healthy oceans, uh, don't overfish them, they'll produce. They'll they'll come back for us every year without us having to really do a whole lot. Uh, and so many people in Southeast Alaska uh, rely. Uh, on the salmon, whether it's for their livelihood, a commercial use, um, or personal use as well. It, I think it's hard for a lot of people in the lower 48 to to kind of relate to having to go, not so much having to go out and harvest your own food, but just the ability to do it. And in Southeast, it's pretty easy. You know, you've got salmon out your back door, halibut out your front door, you've got berries, you've got mushrooms, you've got deer. Um, and most people in Southeast Alaska do live a somewhat subsistence uh, lifestyle. And what I absolutely love about that way of life up there, and it's what I miss uh, terribly uh, when, I, when I leave Southeast Alaska, is what, what an incredible uh, community that builds. And the people have a very strong connection to the land and the sea there. And, and again, just this, you know, um, people are very generous with sharing food up there. The best meals I've ever had in my life were in somebody's home in Southeast Alaska, and it was all food that they got from the sea or got from the forest. And, and again, so it's, it's this community of sharing, it's this community of living close to your food source and, and being aware of where your food comes from and knowing that it's pretty darn healthy. And then you come back here, you know, down in the lower 48 and you go to the grocery store and it's like <laughs> people have no idea where their food comes from, or if they do, it's coming from 2,000 miles away. And, you know, how do you build a community uh, by going to a grocery store and buying potato chips? <laughs> it's pretty tough. Well, and speaking of community, in your acknowledgments, you talk about your appreciation for the Native peoples of Southeast Alaska for allowing you a glimpse into their culture and how Native Alaskans are a part of the salmon and the trees cycle of life, too. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about how you reached out to those communities and how long it took you to immerse yourself in some of those communities? The Tongass is traditionally a Tlingit Indian uh, territory. That's that's the homeland. Uh, for them. And in more recent times, uh, it's home to some Haida and uh, Simpson uh, folks as well. But uh, again, this is a, a Tlingit stronghold. And um, all the people that I met were just very welcoming, um, wonderful, uh, wanted me to know about their culture. We're very proud of their culture. And um, they're still living in, in some ways uh, as they did, you know, hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, as far as harvesting salmon, um, harvesting uh, seaweed, clams, crab, um, again, living living as closely to the land and the sea 
um, as they can. Now, are there grocery stores? Yes, in some of the communities, uh, in most of the communities. So I think a lot of people say from outside this area, say, well, why can't they just go to the grocery store and get food? And it's like, well, the grocery store is really expensive. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> because, you know, any food, you know, this is not an, an agriculture place at all. It's very tough to grow any kind of crop here. It's just too wet. Um, winters are harsher. They're darker you know, than lower 48. So any kind of, say, fresh produce is coming by barge. And while you can get it there, it's expensive. And uh, um, again, you've got incredible food source right out your front door, you know, with salmon and, and the berries there are just uh, that was one of my favorite things to do when I was up there is just because they're so much bigger, <laughs> bigger than bounty, the more plentiful than they are in lower 48. And oh, they're just, you know, you, you can taste, you can just taste kind of the rainforest and, and everything that you eat um, that you're harvesting there. So, so the native folks in many ways are, again, they're, they're harvesting, you know, the same food source um, that their ancestors have basically since time immemorial. And it's pretty amazing that, again, this place still thrives and still exists and that they can still, you know, live this lifestyle. And the other thing, uh, you know, salmon, salmon helped um, the native cultures here build this incredible culture. I mean, think about it, you know, thousands of years ago, you're standing on this, you know, the shore of the ocean and, you know, again, you can pull out a halibut or harvest seaweed at low tide. And, and every year, this incredible gift of salmon just shows up at your doorstep and you harvest enough for what you need um, and to get you through the winter. And that's it. You don't have to you don't have to herd animals. You don't have to be a nomad. You don't have to like follow buffalo or caribou or kind of travel to find your food source. It's right there and it just it's just shows up. So it allowed these cultures a lot of free time. They didn't have to spend every waking hour finding or preparing food. Um, so they had a lot of free time and they developed the most incredible uh, societal structure, um, incredible art forms. Um, and just a few decades ago, one of the um, gentlemen that I feature in the book, his name's John Rowan Jr. And he's a, a carver, uh, carves totem poles and teaches the next generation of native kids um, just about all their different, you know, storytelling and dancing and carving um, is trying to help them learn about their culture. Uh, he told me that just a couple, maybe a few decades ago, the native folks, they, they weren't practicing these cultural traditions. They weren't carving totem poles. They weren't weaving these beautiful uh, spruce and cedar uh, hats. They weren't making the, the button blanket robes. Um, just wasn't a lot of cultural traditions uh, being done anymore. But in the last maybe 20 years or so, there's been a, a big resurgence. And it's, it's evident everywhere um, you go in Southeast. Some in, you know, more so in other communities you know, than some. Um, but it's, I can't imagine that place without the Native culture. It just makes it so rich and so vibrant. And, and it's a part of everyday life. It's not like you have to go somewhere and, you know, see some kind of museum exhibit. It's like people are there. They're integrated within a lot of the larger communities or they're in their own uh, you know, native uh, communities. And it's just, uh, it's really neat to see. And it's really, for me, it's really neat to see um, the pride in everybody that I met. Alaskans are very wary of outsiders, <laughs> and for good reason, and I understand that. And so I was concerned that, you know, the book would be viewed as, oh, this is another 
kind of tourist type book on Southeast Alaska and doesn't even mention that people live here. And it shows, you know, picture postcard, perfect blue sky days, which are <laughs> yeah. incredibly rare up there. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's not really us. And that's not really how we live. And it's not really what we're seeing. But I, I think probably the biggest compliment I had was uh, a woman in uh, Juneau. Passing through there at one point, and she said, "You know, there." And she's a bookstore owner, so she's seen all those types of books mm. that have been done on the region. And and she said, "You know, there's a lot of books um, made of Southeast Alaska that are pretty much made for tourists, and then there's your book, uh, which was made for us." And to me, that was just again, I there was no higher compliment than that. And so now, as I am traveling uh, now through Southeast and giving more presentations and showing my exhibit, I'm I'm getting that reaction a lot, and a lot of local people there coming up and thanking me. I said, thank you so much for not only acknowledging that we live here, you know, that there are people here, but portraying uh, it in a way that we see uh, every day. It's, it's not the tourist uh, type of book. And, and focusing on this incredible ecosystem and, and a way of life that it affords um, the people uh, who live there uh, to live. They absolutely love it. And they love being able to fish and hunt and and be so close, not only to their food source, but to just, you know, the incredible you know, wonders uh, of nature up there. Um, they love it. And and had many people buy the book and send it to, say, their relatives who don't live there and say, this is, you know, this is home. You know, this is what makes where I live so special. Roadless rule protection finally applied to the Tongass after 10 years, but who's counting? Are you hopeful for the future of the Tongass? You know, I, I am. Uh, again, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have spent three years of my life you know, pursuing this, if I didn't have hope um, that we could finally get it right somewhere. And the reason why I have hope for this place is because we know about this connection between salmon and trees now. Back in the the 50s and the 60s, when we were doing large scale logging uh, in the Pacific Northwest and the Tongass itself, we didn't know that there were salmon in the trees. We didn't know what salmon needed. We didn't know what the forest needed. We didn't know what bears needed. I don't think we really understood what people needed. Uh, as well. But now that we have this, we, we have this knowledge, you know, there are salmon in the trees, which means this ecosystem is still intact, it's still functioning as it has for millennia. I have hope that we're actually going to act on that knowledge and, and do the right thing. And you know, perhaps if we view the Tongass as a place that grows salmon, rather than, hey, the Tongass is this place where we can uh, you know, cut down a lot of trees short term and then be left scratching our heads going, well, now what do we do? Because the trees are all gone is kind of what we've done down here on the lower 48, you know, why not look to the future and look at the forest and say, this is a salmon forest and it, it provides for the communities here. And it's this last salmon stronghold uh, in the world, uh, not just uh, in the United States, but, uh, but in the world. So I do have a lot of hope. People you know, worldwide know the benefits now of eating wild salmon. You know, mm. they're high in omega-3s, uh, you know, they're healthy. Uh, it's a great food source. Why would we want to screw that up? Last question. Is Smoke King Salmon about the most delicious food on the planet? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Unequivocally, yes. And, it, and it's funny, too, because I, um, in the book, I've got a little essay that I wrote. It's called Salmon Time. Um, and uh, I started asking people who live there. It's like, okay, gosh, you live in this land of plenty, especially when it comes to salmon. Don't you ever get sick of eating salmon? And so I, I did this informal poll and I asked everybody you know, that I met and nobody even hesitated. They said, nope. Salmon good. Yeah. <laughs> it's <was> awesome. <laughs> Amy Gulick, wonderful having you on the program. We could probably talk for about three hours about everything regarding uh, salmon in the trees, but I really appreciate you making time today. 
congratulations with the book and the multimedia project. Continued good luck and good fortune with your tour, and uh, stay in touch. Well, thank you. Take care. That's going to wrap things up for this week's edition of Tree Huggers International. I'm Tommy Howe. Thanks again for making time for us this morning. Again, we are joined by Amy Gulick, the photographer behind the book, Salmon in the Trees, Life in Alaska's Tongass Rainforest, published by Braided River, the conservation imprint of the Mountaineers books. Thank you, Amy. Again, Salmon in the Trees. You can find out more about the book and the new media platform at salmonintheTrees.org. That's www.salmonintheTrees.org. Braided River, online at braidedriver.org. And the Mountaineers Books online at mountaineersbooks.org. Finally, check out Amy Gulick's website as well. It is amygulick.com, G-U-L-I-C-K, amygulick.com. Thanks as well once again to our friend Greg MacArthur at the CBS Seattle Radio Cluster. Thank you for your time, Greg. For more information on Tree Huggers International and to hear previous editions of the show, go to the Tree Huggers International website at treehuggersintl.com. That's treehuggersintl.com. You can also access the Tree Huggers International page via the FM 94.9 website at www.fm949sd.com. Also, find Tree Huggers International on Twitter and Facebook, and our Twitter address is at treehuggersintl. Tree Huggers International content is now also available on iTunes. This is Tommy Howe for Tree Huggers International. We'll be back same time next Sunday morning with another take on natural science and environmental affairs as we continue our mission to preserve parks, wilderness, and special places on Tree Huggers International. Thanks for making us a part of your Sunday morning and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Be well.